that's what kicks off the snowball for the adoption of technology, the introduction of technology in a useful manner. If you have that fostered mentality of growth and of innovation, and you can feed into that, it's the transformation that will happen and it will be adopted. And it's something that your company as a whole will be able to really latch onto. So the people first have to believe that you're there to support them and you're not there to, to hold them to certain constraints only. Welcome to the Future of Supply Chain podcast. My name is Richard Howells. I'm a Vice President for Thought Leadership for SAP's ERP, Finance and Supply Chain Solutions. And I'm joined by my co-host, Nicole. Hi, everyone. I'm Nicole Slythe, and I'm a blogger, podcaster, and marketer in the supply chain space here at SAP. So today we're joined by our guest, Sam Castro, to discuss AI's current and future role in manufacturing. So welcome, Sam. Thank you so much for joining us today, and it's so great to have you on the series. So if you could just take a moment to introduce yourself, give some insight into your past experiences, and of course, your role today. Great. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate the opportunity to meet with you guys and chat today. I'm part of the line of business manufacturing solution management team here at SAP. I was part of the Lighthammer acquisition way back in 2005. So I've been around in manufacturing here at SAP for quite some time. A lot of services work, saw a lot of plants, visited a lot of different countries, processing a lot of processes there, and had a lot of fun doing it. So happy to be able to share that knowledge and those experiences with you today. So Sam, let's start with a broad question. I mean, I've worked in the manufacturing space for years. Based on looking at you and looking at me, I've probably worked in it longer than you have, but you have more recently been involved in the manufacturing <laughs> space. But with that in mind, data historians have been available in the manufacturing world for years. So they're probably the first place where we had big data. So why have we struggled to leverage this data historically and not leverage it to its full potential? You know, that's a very common question. Probably was asked that same question in the early 2000s as well. It was an engineering answer for you know, a problem, right? It was how do we look at this control system and how do we look at the signals coming off of this control system, tag them as interesting or significant, and then trend that over time. And then how do I compare those trends? And it was, like I said, an engineering-centric answer for what can ultimately provide data and information to a much larger process. But without the right context built in around it, it's really hard to get past that, well, here's the instance of engineering and what we know for hard wired into the assets and the machines and their operation themselves. But when we turn that into, well, how do we get AI or analytics or some higher level view off of that? You, know, you have to know more about it than just the control data. So it's the difference between you know, having crude oil versus having you know, WD-40. There's some refinement. There's some work that has to happen in between in order to take this hodgepodge of information and separate it out into its logical assignments so that you can look at performance by material grouping for a region based on certain characteristics of that material and the asset groups that are actually producing that product. That's super interesting. And I think, you know, speaking about the mass amounts of data, leveraging technologies such as artificial intelligence, machine learning can really become an advantage for companies. So with that, how can they leverage those technologies to take advantage of this data like you spoke about? Sure. And there's a couple of steps that you have to take to get there. And certainly, you know, you've probably seen it or anybody listening, you've probably been through some of these projects before where 
They said, well, look, we have a data science team. What data do you have? And they immediately gravitate to the historian because that's the big repository, if you will, of time series data from operations. And they go, well, why am I having a problem with this product? Tell me. And they go, well, okay. When was that product being produced? To what were we was it? What ingredients? What were the characteristics captured? Where are the tags associated with that? And that becomes a very difficult mapping project, not an impossible one, but a difficult one because you know, you're after the fact trying to pick up the pieces, put it together, and then do something intelligent on top of that. So upfront, if you start to build a taxonomy and it becomes a linear taxonomy, even that linear taxonomy is going to struggle for scale. Right? It can't just be this rigid top-down structure of saying, this machine is asset 1,000. Know, 252. And, and it's in this ISO 55001 asset management structure. It has to be more than that. It has to be, well, yes, it's part of this asset management structure and this is its object assignment, but it's also part of this cost center. It's also part of this work center. It's also part of this logical object-oriented structure, not just this linear taxon. And the reason that's important is because the assignment of the logical structure and the logical definition to that machine will change over time. Its role in production will change over time. If you put another machine in parallel to it, or if you make adaptations and changes to that equipment that fundamentally change its performance or the material scope that it can cover. Now, those are significant events that also need to be tracked along with the readings and the signals that are coming off of that control system or off of that piece of machinery. So it, you have to think of it more of a, as objects in space rather than this linear structure that's very, very rigid because the real world is very rigid. It is not just this structured thing that's always going to be the same. We've learned that the hard way for sure. <laughs> yeah, see the thing or two, right? <laughs> once you set that foundation, right? Once you start to understand how these objects you know, kind of fit with each other, when you have the application itself overlaid that say, these are how we're going to orchestrate the process. These are how we're going to use these resources. And this is how well these resources are responding to being used that way. Now, all of a sudden, you can standardize the KPI layer that sits on top of that raw data collection layer. Once you get to those standard KPIs, now you can start to understand the bigger picture. And you're also building up that competency of scale right? So that it's consistent in the way that we track throughput or our overall equipment effectiveness or our mean time between failures or your, your fault rates for certain codes and their impact to production. Once you know that, now you can understand what it's worth and you can start to target this scenario for this material is worth half a million dollars per quarter for our organization. Maybe we should put a program in place that's going to more proactively address this. And sometimes it's AI, right? Because you're talking about something that's very complex, a lot of dependencies, and maybe you don't necessarily even understand all of the dependencies in the system itself. And that's where like a naive Bayes or something like that can come into place to help show weeding and lagging indicators for performance and stability of a process. Sometimes it's a it's a little more straightforward. Sometimes it's, well, our throughput is garbage because we have machine failures that are associated with this type of failure. And it costs us X amount of time. Well, can we reduce that time? Can we replace that machine? Can we put something in parallel to it? In addition to tracking when it's going to happen next and get ahead of it, right? If we can take it offline, great. 
great. If we can't, maybe we have to put a machine in parallel so that we can in the future. And there's an intelligent thought process that goes into understanding this, but you can't have that next level intelligence if you don't understand the fundamental pieces underneath it. You have to walk these steps of maturity you know, to really get there if you're going to scale it. You could do it off, no problem, but it's not going to give you the scale that you're really after for value. So you talked about that maturity model of the data and the tools. And you also talked about putting the masses of engineering data from historians or directly from machines into the business context so that you can, as you said, do something intelligent with it. What are some of the use cases for AI that you're seeing today or expect to see in the future? Yeah, sure. So one of the ones that we've implemented today was around visual inspection. So being able to understand, is this material with these border variants, the right specs, does it fit the right conditions? Is the a label smear, right? Or is there a, bit, a screw head missing or a, a screw head torn off and the actual body of the screw is embedded in the threading? Right? There's different corrective actions for each and control of not just identification, but also the control of how the corrective action is going to behave afterwards is a key part of the process. Frequency of occurrence means that there's opportunity for improvement. So that was a, one of the very first ones that we saw. And it was, again, very science project. You know, you, they show up as, can you identify an image? Yeah, of course. No problem. Okay. What do you do about it? Well, <laughs> if you don't have the right context of the order or the process or the reworks steps and instructions around it, it becomes very disconnected, right? You can kick it out, but then what? You lose visibility to it almost immediately. So having the process around it was a key part of maturity for making it scale. The other one we see a lot around is in the scheduling piece in what we call find first slot. Uh, schedule comes down from the ERP side. It's ideal, but we all know that you know, when mad plans, the gods laugh, right? It's a you know, common thing, right? I plan on getting home in half an hour and then there's an accident and all of a sudden you're being laughed at because you ain't making it home in half an hour. Same thing happens in manufacturing. How do you rebalance? How do you ensure that you're prioritizing the right product, that you're taking advantage of the capacities that you actually still have available to you to get the right sequencing and the work done based on the business need. And our find first slot capability there around that balance is another thing that we delivered that I think is a lot of value. And it also it starts to challenge you know, even the planners a little bit into thinking differently about the way manufacturing runs. The other piece to the second part of your question, which is good, is where do you see the big opportunity? For me, I see the big opportunity is around golden batch. You know, when we look at the complexity around what it takes to understand a batch process and how well the batch process is running, how stable it is over time and how to improve other areas that maybe don't have the same kind of yield and throughput for that product. How do you apply that trained model in one area to even apply to a new location? I think that golden batch analysis is going to be one of the key things that you're seeing people go after almost immediately. It was almost like the very machine-centric craze where we saw predictive maintenance for machines. But now we're adding a whole level of complexity of not just the machines involved, but also the material characteristics and other information about the process at a level higher than just the raw technical asset itself. On that visual inspection example that you gave, I mean, how long does it take to train the algorithm to detect errors and poor quality in products? 
Yeah. So the training is, I, mean, I watched it done in five minutes, but it's a continuous effort as well. So accuracy after five minutes of training is around 85%. Can you trust it in an automated way at 85%? Most of the time, do people still like to say, hey, you know, I want to make sure that we're providing supervised feedback to it, supervised learning feedback to that model? Absolutely. So it starts off with, we still have our screen and we still show you, hey, this is the things that we think it is. Here's probability that it's one of these issues. And if the operator says, yeah, I agree, then it trains the model again and the model continues to learn over time. So the barrier of entry is very, very low, right? You can train it right off your camera on your computer that we're even using now of what's good and bad. The key part to that is, is when I say it is good, how does it continue? And how we capture and keep that picture with it. But if I say it's bad, what's the right steps? Do mm-hmm. I it right there? If it's missing a screw, I could probably put that screw in no problem right here at my bench. But if the screw head was torn off and now we have to dig that out, somehow you know, take it apart, what are the steps? What's the process? What gets scrapped during this process? What gets put back into inventory or what gets consumed from inventory in order to make sure that that's successful? Okay, great. You, you did something intelligent by pointing it out. Now, what's the rest of the process that's going to continue from it? That's going to make our overall production better. You also mentioned a little earlier some of the standard KPIs that attract. And when discussing manufacturing KPIs, usually we're talking about efficiency and profitability, whether it's OEE, the overall equipment efficiency, or OOE, the overall operations efficiency, versus profitability. How do companies balance these and ensure both efficient and profitable operations? Ooh, that's a good one. I like that one. So it leads into you know a topic of intelligent profitability, right? How do you proactively invest in operations so that you're ahead of the next wave of what your demand by material mix is actually going to be? And when you think about OEE or even your OOE, your ability to schedule utilization of your assets and capacities for production for the different materials. But when you think about what that means, it's really about understanding how well you've produced it to a plan in the past. If I made a thousand units of material A in the last quarter of time and only 10 of material B, my historical performance or lack of performance is going to be skewed for material A. So all the material A issues are going to be top of mind. They're going to be the biggest ones that show up. But if material A isn't the demand that we're going to see for the next quarter of time, it's going to be material B. We should know that. We should be able to overlay our forecast and the different capacities that are going to be used to address that demanded forecast over the next quarter of time and get ahead of it. So OE is great, but it's still a rear view metric of how well you did in the past. But it's still very useful because it sets the foundation for how you can expect to perform based on the mix coming up over the next quarter. So it is a combination of you know, looking back, looking forward, and then prioritizing. When you prioritize, you have to think about, is it volume and throughput? Is it efficiency? Is it in the financial margin, which is what is really key for the business? Uh, and building that business case for investment in operations proactive. If you're going to ask me to produce a thousand units of material B in the next quarter, here's going to be the the biggest detractors from my ability to hit that in a consistent and efficient way. And by the way, if we can move the needle with an investment now, we won't have these problems going forward and I'll be able to hit that margin goal 
in addition to the volume goal without an issue. And that proactive management is really, I think, the key value for these kinds of models. That's great. Well, I completely agree. Efficiency and profitability should always be top of mind. And, you know, they're the two traditional KPIs that most companies are looking at. But moving forward, a big increasing priority has, of course, been sustainability with sustainable operations being a main driving force. So in your opinion, with what you've seen with customers and what you've seen in the field, what are driving sustainability initiatives today and how are they impacting manufacturing? Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, and you know, I'll quote myself again on this, is an efficient enterprise is a sustainable one, right? Uh-huh. The more efficiently you can run operations and you can reduce scrap and reduce the overhead of utilities consumed during non-productive time. That's a really key part for being sustainable. The demand and your obligation as a business is still to provide a service or a product for your customer. At the end of the day, your demand is still your demand. Your ability to capture that certainly is what ensures that your business can keep running and where you can keep reinvesting in and being more innovative in ways to better address your customer needs and your customer wants. So it's definitely a balance from what's profitable the way you run operations versus what is responsible in the way you run operations. But it's still at the end of the day, comes down to how well you understand the balance between the two and that you're ahead of your competition in doing it so that you're the one that your customer is coming to because they know not only are you really good at delivering high quality product on demand when it's needed and able to be very nimble for your customer's need but you're also doing it in a way that is not negatively impacting the environment around you. Right? That efficiency mm-hmm. of reduced reduction of waste and, and scrap the process is a real key part to that balance and ensure that you can invest in things that are leading edge technologies that are being carbon neutral and things like that that are a lot more efficient. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting too, because when we think about sustainable manufacturing as a whole, a lot of people solely focus kind of on the end product. You know, what is this product made of? Is it made of something that is, you know, positively impacting the environment? But it really does, like you said, it goes beyond just that. It's worker safety. It's how you as a company are efficiently producing and how you're managing your time as well. So I think it is really interesting to see how multifaceted that whole subject and how sustainable operations is. Yeah, for sure. And it's it's about, can we just make the investment up front, right? That right there can put you very far behind from a margin or even from a lost productivity perspective. You can't just turn everything off and then turn it back on as all brand new shiny stuff. So there is an incremental transition that you have to go through as an organization and the methodology around that has to come from a corporate standard of intelligent profitability, right? That corporate standard of here's our biggest opportunity. Here's how we can make up that investment over the next period of time. This should be our priority for the business. And that is what continues the snowball, right? That, oh, we made this much money back. We were able to correct this. We were able to identify these opportunities. And now let's go on to the next one and the next one. And that interval of control, that continuous improvement keeps rolling with your organization that transformation isn't something that happens overnight it's something that happens gradually and this is how you fund it also when you're looking to reach your sustainability goals as a company we've talked about having lots of data in manufacturing but the question would be then do we have the right data to address those am i tracking the emissions am i tracking the waste and having that data 
so that you can, because if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. You can't know how you've improved if you don't know where you are when you started, as far as emissions are concerned in particular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and as far as even, you know, utilities consumed during the production scenario process, right? How much water, electricity, natural gas, steam, what was our byproducts from it? What were the poundage of waste? What was the packaging materials from our suppliers that we were able to turn into a recycled scenario? Right? We see that a lot too. It's a lot of packaged cardboard and pallets and things like that that end up in a heap somewhere that somebody is trying to figure out, well, what are we going to do with this heap? In the past, we threw this out because it's not useful for us. It was just part of how the product arrived. Now we move it to a recycle or we sell it to a building materials company that turns that paper into product that they can sell. So there's definitely opportunity for plants to be more efficient in the way that they run the productive materials, but also in the byproducts of production, there's also ways that you can be clever about what you do with those two. I won't be driving down the street in the future when I see loads of signs for free pallets on the side of the road. They'll be recycled somehow. Let's get some forward-looking stuff now, Sam. We talk a lot and we hear a lot about, and that term is interchangeable, factory of the future, smart factory, whatever you may call it. But let's stick with a smart factory definition. What would manufacturers need to consider from a technology standpoint and a business standpoint when creating their smart factory. Yeah, culture. Culture of the people, the pride in what they're doing. You, you hire people into your organization because you believe that they can contribute something, right? So making sure that they're empowered and they feel like they're empowered to contribute and not just held into a little box and constrained for mundane tasks only. That culture of adoption and innovation is what is really going to get you well on your way. It's absolutely the first step. Once people believe that they can make a difference, then they start to make the difference. And once you start to make a difference and you're heard, right, because it makes a lot of sense for the organization to listen ground up for what's going on, and that's where all this starts. That's what kicks off the snowball for the adoption of technology, the introduction of technology in a useful manner. If you have that fostered mentality of growth and of innovation, and you can feed into that it's the transformation that will happen and it will be adopted and it's something that your company as a whole will be able to really latch onto. So the people first have to believe that you're there to support them and you're not there to, to hold them to certain constraints only. Well, that is a perfect transition actually into the next question I was going to ask you because culture and the people that you're working with in those factories or the sites are so vital because even if we can have the most enhanced and advanced technology, there's still workers there that need to be trained, that need to know what to do, and they'll still have those hands-on experiences. So shifting from you know a smart factory to a smart worker, as they say, they come in having these years or even decades of experience coming from those hands-on experiences with the equipment. So with that in mind, what will the role of the shop floor workers be in the future? And also, how do you keep them empowered through times of change as well? Sure. That's a really good one because you're talking about somebody who's probably built up trade skills mm-hmm. over many years. Maybe they're a certified master welder or something like that. And they're very proud of the fact that when the time comes and they have to grind out a weld from a weld robot and put one down themselves, that it can be done no problem, right? They even probably know the habits of the robot itself where the robot tends to have an issue maybe on a voltage level or whatever for laying down a perfect weld line. So they even know 
critical areas where that well tell struggled in the past and it's almost routine. It's like breathing for them to check that spot extra and the motion to actually fix it perfectly every time. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of skills, they can't be lost, right? You certainly have to empower people to, you know, it's great that you can do this, but now you have to broaden your mind. Now we have an inspection system that's going to track all this information for you. So you don't have to look at all 15 points, right? The system is going to tell you, hey, over here, and retrain your mind not to look at all 15. You're only looking at the points and trusting that the system is guiding you in the right way. And what that might mean is that you're responsible for four or five cells now instead of just the one that you were always comfortable with. But you have guidance, right? It's not all 15 points. It's just these one or two <laughs> here and there. So the mentality when you do something like that is, well, you're going to overload me with work, for one, because it's now all these extra things that are happening. Or you're going to phase me out completely and I'm not going to be valuable to the organization. So when you prove out first that you're one, you're not going to overload them and control quality of the system and you're not going to have them as the bottleneck, that's the easy one. The mentality shift of how am I still going to remain useful for the organization is ultimately what's going to happen. And how do you upskill that person into learning weld robotics and maybe some design and process engineering things to help be better welders on the automation side. It can be part mm-hmm. of it. How do you check for quality defects? How do you play a role in the quality correction process later is ultimately going to be part of it. So upskilling and changing the mentality, changing the skills of the workforce is going to be part of that growth of fully automated systems. Mm-hmm. I think it's too, there's that age old tale where it's like, oh, robots are going to take over our jobs. We won't have anything left. But I don't think it'll ever take over. I think it'll just help us do our jobs more efficiently and help with those mundane tasks in a way, like you said. Right. It'll allow us to focus on value add as opposed to the repetitive ones. My take on it is if a machine can do it, then a machine should do it, right? Let it do it. (laughs) Absolutely. And we should should be adapting to no longer thinking that we have to do it or I'm the only one that can do this. That shouldn't be the case anymore. It should be what is the value that I bring to the organization now that these things are happening and shifting that mentality over to that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, alternately, you know, on the other side, we have a whole new generation now coming into the workforce or Gen Z or whichever the next one is after that. <laughs> but, you know, they've grown up with this technology and now we're used to it and we like having it in our workforce. So, how do you attract them and give them the tools they expect to be using on an everyday basis? Yeah, well, now isn't that the fun part? Uh, <laughs> right? And it, how do you keep us? Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. For the, the, or keep us entertained is more, I guess. The... So, well, it starts, it starts with the culture. Mm-hmm. The culture of a plant has to be there again. And the workforce that exists has to be accepting of the new way of doing things. And that includes... How do you upskill and train folks to work on a manufacturing floor or work in the operations side of the house? It comes with accommodations right, around technology and new user interfaces or a lack of user interfaces where the system is more interactive. It's just reacting to the work you're doing rather than always having to have to push a screen or you know having a fancy UI. It's really just something that's telling you, hey, do this, do this, do this, and then you're just doing it very hand, right? So I think it comes with a different mentality shift from the old way where there was 30 years of trade skills into a newer way where, oh, well, you know, this wealth didn't go quite the way that we needed it to. And, oh, machine, correct this action here yourself. How do you interact with how that's going to work? How you understand what those characteristics are you care about? 
but also how do you get those areas to compete? So there's certainly a gamification and a competitive nature that people will always bring to the table. doesn't matter what generation you are. People always like games. They like puzzles. They like to be on TV. So they like the visual reward of that. And I think the social aspect of it becomes more and more important for how you build that culture of appreciation and how you build that culture of performance, you know? So certainly the old way worked. There's overhead to it. There's visibility challenges to it. And there's ways that newer techniques address those. Hey, Sam, we're half an hour into the podcast, so we're coming to the end. So I've got the one last question that we ask everybody. We've been focusing on AI in manufacturing and manufacturing in general. But when you bring that into the larger picture of supply chains, what do you see as the future of supply chains? Ooh, I mean, that's a really good one. And I, I almost see it as the future of even people and the way that we think about movement of ourselves on the streets and from you know, one point to another where it's provided on demand, it's provided as a service, and it's routing us almost dynamically, right? There's a lot of unexpected changes in your route, in your plan. And as a result, you rely heavily on technology to do that. And that's just a modern way of just us initiating that and then expecting the system to react. I see our supply chains doing the same thing where, oh, there's a disruption over here, but who cares? We have the capacity over there and we're going to shift that because it's more important because, you know, we still, at the end of the day, have to service our customer. Yes, there's a disruption, but yes. So what? We have the flexibility that we need in order to accommodate it here. And we're going to do it this way or distribute off that impact so that it's not as big of a hit all at once. So I see the, the distribution and redistribution across the supply chain being one of the very key things, just like what we do when we take trips and we travel. Well, Sam, thanks for a great conversation. Appreciate the opportunity. It's been a lot of fun. And thanks to everyone for listening. Please mark us as a favorite and you can get regular updates and information about future episodes. But until next time, from Sam, Nicole and I, thanks for discussing the future of supply chains.